You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Many of you listening will be familiar with the struggles that people have faced during this pandemic, from feelings of isolation and anxiety to increased substance use disorder, grief, and even thoughts of suicide. Today, we're going to look at COVID-19's impact on America's behavioral health crisis with lessons that could apply to any country and any individual. Joining me are Erica Hutchins Co., a partner in McKinsey's Atlanta office. Erica, welcome. Thanks, Diane. It's a privilege to be here. And Kana Enomoto, a senior expert in the Washington, D.C. office. Kana, nice to have you here. Thank you, Diane. Super excited about the conversation today. Together, these two have founded and they lead McKinsey's Center for Societal Benefit through Healthcare. So, Erica, let's start with the problem. I've heard so many different reports from depression rates to working dads embracing flexibility and loving the crisis. What is the actual toll of this pandemic on Americans from where you sit? What we've seen happen from the pandemic is not only the impact on the physical side with some of the increased risk and the significant rate of those contracting COVID, but also on the mental side. So we've seen an exacerbation of existing behavioral health conditions, both mental and substance use disorders for individuals that face a disruption in care with some of the challenges underway, but also a new onset of conditions. There's been a significant spike in reports of depression, anxiety, substance use, And this is happening across the board, regardless of socioeconomic status, age, uh, background composition. It's impacting additional stress for children and adults alike. We've been doing some modeling that has shown that we can expect a potential 50% increase in the prevalence of these behavioral health conditions that could lead to $100 billion to $140 billion of additional spend in the U.S. just in the first 12 months post-onset. And I think one important thing to remember is that there are much longer-term effects of the pandemic. These are going to take a toll for years to come. Sometimes some of the impact of post-traumatic stress disorder does not even appear right away. And this isn't just from the pandemic, but it's also from the ensuing uh, financial crisis that's been happening. People that have faced job loss or other economic uncertainty, adding additional pressure and stress. We have seen this in previous crises, haven't we, Kana? Um, I'm thinking of the last financial crisis in particular. Does that offer any lessons in terms of how this is playing out? Yes, absolutely. Uh, if we look back at the 2008-2009 crisis, we saw both in the United States and globally increases in suicide rates. And so people are concerned that for every 1% uh, increase in the unemployment rate, we might see a comparable 1% increase in the suicide rate. Uh, without any intervention or prevention. So that is really a call to action to us to put programs in place and to reach out to folks and make sure that they have the supports uh, that they need so that they don't see that as the only option. I'm interested, Erica, in how surprising any of this would be for you since you've been doing research in this area for so long. What has struck you as something that perhaps you weren't expecting or something that's especially worrying to you right now? As devastating as the increase in the behavioral health needs has been, the silver lining is that people are talking about it. I think what has been unprecedented is the step change difference in the stigma that has been perpetuating 
mental and substance use disorders for years if we look back to the history of our country. And I think the amount that dialogue has changed almost overnight because everybody is all of a sudden feeling the onset of distress, the onset of worry, the uncertainty, the grief for those that have lost loved ones to COVID. It is making it okay to talk about. And more people are are much more open about how they are feeling and how others are feeling. And I think that that has been a big shift that has happened with the pandemic. And I, I certainly hope that that continues. And I think it'll be a, a first step in the right direction for um, starting to make a difference about this topic and treating mental and substance use disorders like any other physical health condition. What has been surprising to me uh, in COVID-19 is really how we've seen synergistic epidemics come together. So we know that COVID-19 leads to social isolation. We see the economic crisis leading to psychological distress from job loss, reduced income, increasing income inequality. Uh, and then you see the frontline healthcare workers who are faced with significant trauma and stress, uh, feelings of helplessness and frustration. And then those individuals who have lost people to COVID-19 or have experienced uh, severe health consequences themselves. So you have that whole set of stressors. But on top of that, we already had an epidemic of opioid use disorder and opioid overdoses. We already had an epidemic of increasing suicides. Both of these things have been contributing to decreased life expectancy in the United States for the past 15 years. And then we have the confluence of these three things. And what has surprised me is the exponential impact on the American people, where you see 40 to 46 percent of Americans reporting uh, symptoms of depression and anxiety. That's just, that is astounding. And the opioid and um, suicide rates, they've gotten worse, have they not, during this period, or is it too early to tell? It's too early to tell officially. We know that overdose death rates went up in 2019, and we have some leading indicators uh, that, in fact, that number is going to be even higher in 2020 due to COVID-19. Kana, we're living in a time of heightened awareness of social injustice. How does that play into these issues? Ever since the summer where we had the social unrest and the protests related to George Floyd and other uh, incidences of racism and racial violence, we've seen a marked uptick in distress experienced uh, by uh, uh, black, uh, indigenous, and people of color in the United States so that we had uh, 46% of Latinx and uh, black Americans, as well as an increased rate among Asian Americans and American Indians and Alaska Natives of depression and anxiety. And I think that's really an indicator overall of the stress experienced by these uh, groups, uh, not only uh, from the broader social context, but also on the everyday. And so the impact of COVID-19 and how it intersects with these issues of uh, health equity are really, really important to attend to. Also, significant rural health disparities. Our mental health professional shortage areas are much more likely to be rural counties than non-rural counties. And when we think of uh, racial disparities, Disparities. We think of them often as urban challenges, but in fact, uh, the disparities in access to care for um, minorities, people of color in rural counties is even more dramatic. Have you found it easy to cope with the isolation yourself or how has it been going? For me, um, 
you know, it is interesting within my own family, we struggle with mental health issues. And so we've had to make a rapid shift to telebehavioral health, uh, which has been tremendously effective and a good support throughout this time. I have a very close family. They're scattered across the country. And we just made really concerted efforts to make sure we connected every Sunday for a family game night. Uh, and, and that's not even something we would have done before the pandemic. Uh, so it's been a nice way to bring people together and kind of get that boost of social interaction when your regular weekdays are so depleted. I love that. A family game night. How about you, Erica? I would say um, on one front, similar to Kana, also have mental health challenges within the family. So there was an immediate kind of concern and focus on how do we ensure care isn't interrupted and how do we make the pivot to telebehavioral health care. Aside from that, there certainly has been a benefit coming from being a, a mother of two very young children who travels for a living. There's been the nice benefit that I'm home all the time. And while, you know, working significantly, the ability to actually see my family every day and my parents and brother and sister-in-law all live close by. And if it hadn't been for the pandemic, we would not be seeing each other as much as we are now, but we make that concerted effort to spend lots of time outdoors. And I think the other aspect, when I think about how the pandemic has impacted me personally, it's been such a personal call to action as well. Of We certainly set up the center last year before the pandemic even hit, but knowing that we are in a position to be able to make a difference on this topic on raising awareness around the urgency around addressing mental and substance use disorders, as Connor just described, really is a, a very strong kind of sense of calling that, that makes it much easier to kind of get through the days, even if we're not able to be with our colleagues physically and makes you know everything seem worth it. Erica, I'm curious, what inspired you to get into this field in the first place? I think what what inspired me to want to really dedicate my career to making a difference in improving our broader behavioral health care system is a very personal experience. When I was in college, my younger brother first started to develop symptoms of a thought disorder. And I think seeing what his experience was dealing with a mental illness now for the majority of his adult life, seeing those challenges firsthand of actually finding access to high quality care some of the challenges of stigma that exists, some of the uncertainties really fueled me to say, if we all experience things for a reason in our life, what am I going to actually do about this? The fact that this can truly happen to anyone, this is rooted in biological disorder in genetics. It very easily could have been me that was born with more you know, preconditioned to develop a thought disorder later in life versus my brother. So if I'm actually in this advantaged position working for you know, large reputable firm of McKinsey and Company, then how do I use that to drive good? And when the opportunity came up of really getting energy around the Center for Societal Benefit through healthcare and raising more awareness for these issues and truly making a difference in a health system at large, but also on a very individual level, both anything I can be doing to help my brother's experience and his longer-term recovery, but every other individual that might be facing something similar and might not have the confidence to talk about it because of the stigma that exists is what really drives me to do this day in and day out. And, and honestly, that's what so inspired me about Kana when I met her, because if I was ever to fulfill my mission of bringing together my personal passion for driving change in behavioral health with my professional role of being a partner with McKinsey and Company, I knew I needed somebody like Kana at my side to help me make this difference. And it's been a, a wonderful experience and partnership so far. 
Fana, tell me about your own experience sort of getting into this field. You mentioned you were with the Surgeon General's office as well. Sure. I joined the federal government over 20 years ago and dedicated my career really to addressing mental health and substance use issues at a macro level because as a child, uh, my f- members of my family struggled with mental illness, with psychosis, with depression, with trauma. And you know, when I was 13 years old, I lost a family member to suicide, which made a marked impact on me because no one ever talked about it. People said she died of a heart attack. You know, she was in her early 20s. She didn't die of a heart attack. And so I wanted to understand how is it possible that somebody so beautiful, so smart, so wonderful could not see a path to health and that people around her couldn't get her healthy. And so from then on in college, I majored in psychology. I did clinical psychology. I I worked for the government because I didn't want to just make a difference at an individual level, but I wanted to help create a system where that could never happen again. Uh, And then more recently, uh, in my own family, my daughter has had a number of mental health challenges and it was almost impossible to get to good quality care. I really had to struggle and fight and call friends and just really, really do a lot of investigative work uh, myself, spend the night in the emergency room. I mean, it just shouldn't have been as hard as it was to get to care for somebody. If I have all the resources in the world, I can't imagine how difficult it is for people who know less, know fewer people and don't have as good of insurance as I do. Uh, so I'm super passionate because I know these issues are preventable and they're treatable and it's just a matter of having the political and social will to get it done and we can do it. And, and, and having a holistic approach, right, Erica? I mean, that's really what your work is all about is kind of connecting the dots in some ways and creating that ecosystem where change can happen. Yeah, that's exactly right, Diane. Of first helping everyone to realize that this can happen to everyone. This isn't someone else's problem. It's an issue we all should kind of pay attention to and want to solve together for each other. And that any approach to try to improve someone's health, their overall well-being, needs to take behavioral health into account. We know that one in two individuals in the course of their life will have some type of mental or substance use disorder challenge or experience. And so In order to improve the health of our country, to reverse the decline in life expectancy that has been happening, we need to really account for the whole person. I'm curious about the Center for Societal Benefit through Healthcare. How did that come about? Well, actually, the Center for Societal Benefit Through Healthcare is what drew me to McKinsey in the first place. I got a call from Erica, and she I had met her through other work when I was with the Surgeon General's office, and she said, hey, we're thinking of starting this center. We're going to look at mental health. We're going to look at social determinants. We think it could be a really exciting way to put McKinsey's tools and resources to really good use. And do you know folks who would be good for this. And I was like, that just sounds so, so exciting and like something I would love to dedicate my time and energy to. And so in pretty short order, Erica worked her magic and and I was able to uh, join the firm. And it's just been a, a really outstanding ride since then where we've been able to do work that is super meaningful and I think high impact uh, for the field and for the country. So Erica, tell me about the vision. What gap in the marketplace were you seeing? 
that this was meant to address. As a healthcare practice, we had been doing work across the focus areas of our center for a number of years, client work on mental and substance use disorders, social determinants of health, rural health, maternal health. But we really felt that these issues weren't just impacting the healthcare system, they were impacting the broader society at large. And that we as McKinsey had capabilities to be able to help, but if we were only doing work one client at a time, we would never make the difference that needed to happen, that the real solution there would be in collaboration. How do we really collaborate with other partners, other stakeholders to be able to spur the innovation that was needed to make that step change difference across these issues? And taking the topic of behavioral health across mental and substance use disorders in particular, such a cross-cutting one, that's going to be driving issues in rural health, driving issues in maternal health, driving issues in some of the unmet social needs, and also something on a global scale. These are issues that matter to our global society. We as McKinsey know we have capabilities to help. So let's do something totally different. The whole goal is to be able to enable others to replicate things that have been proven effective to try to scale change. Uh, When you say partner, are you partnering with health systems? Are you partnering with employers? So we are still in early days of the center, but I think the, the goal would be partnering with anybody. It can be partnering with a foundation that maybe is also mm-hmm. trying to to move the needle and do important work in certain spaces. It could be partnering with a health system that wants to pilot a specific care delivery innovation on a population that could better integrate mm-hmm. behavioral health into a primary care setting. It could be partnering with a payer that is is really aiming to change a value-based payment around behavioral health conditions. Could be partnering with a community-based nonprofit, with an academic institution, with employers, given the significant role that employers play in this in terms of access to benefits for their employees. So I think that we're we're quite open. One of our big partnerships to date has been with Shatterproof, national nonprofit focused on reversing the negative impact that addiction has uh, across the country, really focusing on how to reduce the stigma that exists. I'm a Canadian originally, and I've always been intrigued by the U.S. What is unique about this market with regards to behavioral health? I think the United States is uniquely positioned in the field of behavioral health, where on the one hand, you know, we lead on so many dimensions. Our science is incomparable. Our innovations in terms of what we're doing around peer services, community-based services, trauma-informed care, culturally competent care, uh, the United States really leads the world. And on the other hand, there are some challenges based on how our healthcare system is structured, where it's more of a disease care system rather than a a health promoting system or the way people have access to uh, services through their employer-based insurance where other countries are investing quite a bit in social care, uh, making sure that people have adequate housing, people have employment, people have good transportation and food security. In the United States, those challenges compound people's experiences of mental illness and substance use disorder and or for those who have mental illness and substance use disorder, it makes it that much more challenging for them to achieve recovery. So I think it is a mixed bag where other countries do better on the prevention, promotion, social care aspects, and helping people achieve and maintain recovery. Uh, On the other hand, we really lead in terms of advancing evidence-based models of care and innovation. Erica, you mentioned employers, and I know there have been a lot of investments in wellness programs and such, you know, at the private sector level. But we're facing some really significant economic constraints and very different work environment with remote working. What are you hearing from employers? 
We are hearing loud and clear that employers are concerned at the impact that the pandemic is having. We did a recent survey that showed nine out of 10 employers felt that COVID-19 has been affecting their workforce behavioral health and productivity. They're seeing increased rates of self-reported depression, anxiety, alcohol and drug use. I think one of the big challenges of this large scale shift to remote work is you don't see each other personally on a day-to-day basis. And it becomes that much harder to really be able to detect if somebody needs help, if they're facing a challenge and the ability to check in. In addition to employees themselves feeling increased distress and employers recognizing this, um, there's also the added challenge for parents who are working full-time, but having children who are in a you know remote school situation and concerned about their children's mental health, that is another draw on productivity. So employers also trying to take that more holistic approach to see how can we help our employees in terms of their total life. We're hearing employers show expressed interest, but often not knowing what tools to use. So how do they know where they currently stand in terms of their offerings? Are they at parity with what they're offering for behavioral health care versus physical health care? What are things they can be doing to increase the dialogue and reduce stigma and issues, especially in a remote environment? It's very easy to have the whole conversation revolve around mental health and substance abuse, but there are other areas of focus that you take, Kana, in the center. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the impact COVID is having, say, on the societal determinants of behavioral health? people who have challenges uh, on various dimensions of social determinants are going to be at higher risk for COVID. So for example, those who have to take public transportation are at increased risk. People who have insecure housing, who are homeless, who are living in overcrowded conditions, these are tremendous risk factors that we are seeing uh, result in higher rates of positivity and health risk. And then if you compound that with the already existing challenges of poverty, of economic deprivation or income inequality, that compounds those inequities. And then you have the challenges of kids going to schools and the education loss. Kids from lower income families are going to suffer more educational loss than kids who go to excellent quality schools as, as they have moved to distance learning. You hear of some Schools that have high rates of free and reduced lunch also having very high rates of kids not signing in to the virtual learning environment. We are going to have years uh, to deal with the impact of COVID-19 that's uh, been on the social dimensions that we were just talking about. So, Erica, what are some of the things that can spark change? Start with healthcare leaders. What could they be doing right now to avert or at least mitigate some of the worst impacts of COVID? We've known for decades that there are high rates of co-occurring disorders between beaver health and physical health conditions. So what's really going to spark change now? I think it, it comes down to two things. One is knowing that there's a solution, knowing that substance use disorders and mental health disorders are treatable, addressable conditions. People can recover from them or they can be prevented. I think a second part of that is the business case. The the more that it becomes clear that there is actually value on the table, this isn't just the right thing to do to help people, but there's value there. And then I think the third piece is the social norm aspect of it. So the more that the dialogue continues around the awareness that Behavioral health conditions can happen to anybody. They're not something that is because of a moral failing, because of how you were you know, raised. They really, truly cut across 
class, economic background, age, et cetera, that then there's more of the obligation as well of, oh, it's time to do something about this. And some of the work we've done with Shatterproof, we did a whole set of research on analogous change movements. What is it that changed behavior when there was this really deeply rooted stigma and lack of treatment and change? Even just taking the example of HIV AIDS, one of the biggest pieces that drove action was when all of a sudden focus was on Ryan White, Magic Johnson, others, where that kind of light bulb went off of, oh, this could really happen to anybody, um, that, right. that it starts to make a difference. It does. And certainly you're seeing a lot of people talk about mental health. When we look at other countries um, and the approach that they take, how is it different from the U.S.? Sure. Well, in sort of the developed Western countries, we see uh, that emphasis on social care and prevention, uh, really embracing behavioral health. In some low middle income countries, you see the exact opposite, where uh, there really is no behavioral health or mental health system to speak of, uh, where there's very low kind of uh, health literacy around mental illnesses and substance use disorders, and you lack um, much of an infrastructure to address these issues so that, you know, um, uh, one of the great researchers in this area, Vikram Patel, says there's virtually, you know, less than 1% penetration of psychological therapies in some low and middle income countries uh, where it's, you know, impossible uh, to get care because it's just not something that's talked about. So one anecdote that I heard is that in all the 22 languages spoken in India, there isn't a word for uh, mental health. Um so it just shows that we have a ways to go. There are interventions that work that have been really innovative uh, that have come to play where you are in lower resourced uh, economies. Um, there are also greater reliance on social social supports and social networks uh, that can be very supportive, healing, curative, and, and uh, helping people achieve and, res and retain recovery. Um, but also some pretty surmountable factors in terms of getting people access to evidence-based uh, therapies as well as the, um, you know, modern uh, generation psychiatric medications. So uh, lots of challenges, also lots of opportunities. I think one big difference is that often other countries are taking a much more deliberate investment in the social care and social needs broader social services that surround someone, which directly plays into that concept of whole health. So it isn't just your physical health and your behavioral health, but it's how are your broader social needs met? Do you have a roof over your head at night? Do you have access to healthy food? Do you have social support or are you isolated? There often is a higher amount of investment into the surrounding social services than here, which is some of what exacerbates the challenges that then fall on our existing behavioral health care system here because it is more separated from the broader social supports that an individual needs to truly thrive. Let me ask whether as an employer or healthcare leader, what are some of the tactics right now that they could be doing to perhaps encourage people to really address some of these issues? That's a great question, Diane. I think there are a few things that we're recommending that employers can do to help their workforce address the stress and the mental health and substance use consequences of COVID-19. First of all, let's take a deep look at the benefits that they're offering to make sure that they have sufficient healthcare benefits, that they have access within their EAP programs to tools and programs that can help people manage their stress and access help should they need it. 
then the employer really needs to make sure they're communicating what those resources are to their workforce and send a message that this is the expectation, that it's okay, uh, as people say, it's okay not to be okay, and that we see this as a fundamental part of your overall health. And because we value you as an employee, as a workforce, as a person, we want you to be healthy. And part of that means that you are mentally healthy, that you're addiction free, and that you have access to the treatment services and supports that you need. And then thirdly, it's creating a culture within the uh, work environment where it's okay to talk about these things that people who are in treatment are respected and cared for and and that those people who are in recovery are also celebrated and supported for having overcome a health condition just like any other if you or somebody you know is struggling with one of these issues with a with depression with anxiety problems with drinking too much or turning to prescription drugs i think it's important that people take the brave step to ask for help whether that's from a friend from a clergy member from a primary care doctor or a mental health or substance use specialist i think asking for help is not easy to do but it can be life changing If you're a person who isn't struggling but has the resources and has the resources to help others, I think reaching out and taking the brave step to offer help to someone that you might see struggling can be so important and pivotal in a relationship where it's hard right now to kind of break past the how are you doing, I'm doing fine kind of exchange. And finally, I think for people who are parts of organizations where they have influence, whether that's as a a CEO or as a frontline employee, to look around and ask a question of whether or not we are supporting these issues, we are supporting people who struggle with these issues, and sort of demand that we treat mental illnesses and substance use disorders with the same care, urgency, skill, and knowledge that we do any other condition. If we all do that, that can really make a difference. Hannah, I'm curious about the role that policy plays in this area. That's a great question because in the last 12 or so years, we've seen incredible momentum come from the policy side where you have mental health parity and addiction equity where payers are no longer allowed to discriminate and put unfair limitations on treatment for mental and substance use disorders uh, in ways that they don't put limitations on treatment for physical health conditions. So for example, people used to be limited to say 12 outpatient therapy sessions a year. Well, if you have a condition like schizophrenia, there's just no way to manage that. So it was an unfair burden on families and individuals to try to manage uh, mental health and substance use challenges. For many people, substance use care was not covered at all. And so in the last dozen or so years, together with the Affordable Care Act, you've seen tremendous progress in this space because of those policies. And then more recently in the Support Act, the 21st Century Cures Act, uh, we've seen more and more momentum growing on the federal side, as well as in the states who are moving quickly to make sure these issues are getting addressed. In terms of the return on investment as a society, as individuals, as employers, what thoughts would you want to leave with people to really make this top of mind? The return on the investment is the fact that you have the increased productivity, increased retention. If you've hired somebody and invested significantly in them and then they leave because of some type of challenge with a mental health or substance use disorder and the right supports weren't there to keep them there and you have to hire somebody brand new, that's lost investment. And from a healthcare system side, 
there's been uh, ample research that shows that the um, those with behavioral health conditions that are unmanaged are driving a spike in physical health costs. And so by simply better managing the behavioral health costs, the incremental dollars it will take to provide more therapy or the right medication um, are nothing compared to the savings on the physical health side. One example to try to bring it to life, imagine somebody who is suffering from depression who also has diabetes. Well, if their depression isn't well managed, they are going to be unlikely to be checking their blood glucose levels on a regular basis, unlikely to be taking medicine, to be checking in with their physician, to be keeping the right diet and exercise. This isn't an insurmountable problem. We actually know what works. So there are evidence-based interventions that exist. They just aren't scaled. Take, for example, first episode psychosis. Only about 5% of adolescents who experience um, psychosis for the first time actually get the evidence-based care that that we know works today. Um, and there's you know, significant access issues too. So it's not that we don't know what works, we just need to apply it, which in a sense is a much better position to be in than if we had no idea where to even begin. Well, you talked about silver linings. I imagine that some of what we're learning about remote work, for example, could be applied to areas like rural health, which I know is another area of focus for you. I think that there has been... Um, tremendous benefit from some of the flexibilities that have been introduced in telebehavioral health. Once, you know, a number of the providers got up and running and were able to be tele-enabled, I think that it has done um, a significant benefit to some of the access challenges that existed and something that we certainly hope will be able to persist beyond the pandemic as a benefit and opportunity that has come out of the situation. The game night tactically, Kana, sounds intriguing to me. What would you do for the individual listener right now that could make a real difference? Any advice, Connor? Let me go to you first. I think there are basic precautions that people need to take to make sure they're eating, they're sleeping, they're exercising adequately. And that can be hard when there's a blurring of lines between your work day and every other day or every other time and every other space uh, in your life. It all blends together. And so it can be hard to take the time out to do that self-care. I think it's also important to monitor yourself to know what, how is my mood doing? Am I drinking uh, more alcohol than normally or am I using illicit substances in a way that is worrisome uh, to me or to others? And then to make sure that you're willing to ask for help and you know where to get that help because we want to address these issues before things get too far away from us. Great. And Erica, any advice for individuals or even individual leaders? I think just never underestimating the impact that human connection can have. It can be much harder. You need to deliberately build it into your day. You're not going to be passing someone in the hall. You might not be seeing you know, extended family members as often. Reach out, ask someone how they're doing. To Kanda's point earlier, go beyond the cursory, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Move on to the next thing. And really just try to stay a little bit even more in tune, kind of really keeping that radar up to anything that seems off and ask the next question. I think it makes a significant difference to individuals who are suffering to know that somebody is reaching out and that it's okay to talk about it. So I think that's something that we can all apply in our personal lives and in our professional lives, kind of keeping an eye out for our colleagues, just as we would with our family members or close friends and taking that extra effort to ask somebody how they are really doing today. Thank you both for your time on this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Diane. That was Erica Hutchins-Coe and Kana Enomoto. 
and together they lead McKinsey's Center for Societal Benefit through Healthcare. If you'd like more information about the center and also to see some of the articles and data that they've produced on this topic, go to McKinsey.com. Thank you for listening. And also thank you to Elizabeth Newman in McKinsey Publishing and Belinda Yu for their contributions to this podcast. I'm Diane Brady. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.